This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Roxana Espos, Palace Shaw, and Light Ali, gathered, as always, in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're reaching out from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum contained in a contradiction, both a confirmation and the crime scene. Sometimes I imagine Chicago wrapped in that distinctive yellow crime scene tape. Do not enter. Criminal investigation underway. These lands were stewarded for millennia by many indigenous peoples and lineages, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. These human beings raised their children here, created their communities, made sense and meaning of their lives for one another, experienced the flowing and the passing of time, planned for the future, and buried their dead here. I acknowledge them and thank them all. I apologize for the actions of my settler colonial forebears and I join in solidarity in seeking truth, repair, and reconciliation. Chicago is the home of the first non-native naturalized citizen of the Potawatomi people, John Baptiste Point du Sable, a man of African descent who is considered the first permanent non-indigenous settler in the area, sometimes referred to as the founder of Chicago. Du Sable lived here with his wife Kitihawa, a Potawatomi woman he married in 1770. When Kitihawa was removed from her home by the U.S. government as part of a series of forced displacements, Dusable followed her and their two children to Iowa, where they raised their family together. Chicago is a confluence of water, wilderness, peoples, hopes, and aspirations, a place of outsized and crazy complexity built up by the hands of immigrant workers and African-ancestored people escaping terror and the afterlife of slavery during the Great Migration. Justice seekers, freedom fighters, teachers and cultural workers, artists and creators, organizers and activists, all of us who stand on humanity's freedom side, remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, genocide and exploitation, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. We were at the Winter Garden of the Harold Washington Library this month for the launch of Help This Garden Grow, a new docuseries that tells the story of Hazel Johnson, a visionary of the environmental justice movement and a resident of the Altgeld Gardens community on the far south side of Chicago. Help This Garden Grow is a project of RESPAIR, R-E-S-P-A-I-R, a liberatory ecosystem hub brought to life by an entire community and spearheaded by my mentors in media, the visionaries Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger. 
Respair Production and Media, RPM, creates and builds media projects in partnership with social justice movement makers, with visionaries, and with creatives who are taking stock of the world as it is and working relentlessly to create a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. Over the past few years, Ergo has made its mark as a unique space of movement building, opening critical conversations, deepening our understanding of fundamental questions, connecting people, and linking issues. Respair represents a qualitative leap forward, spinning off new media projects in all directions. One example is the podcast Guaranteed with the incomparable Eve Ewing. Another is Help This Garden Grow, and I'm honored to have been asked to help launch this docuseries by broadcasting episode one. Here it is. I'm supposed to be giving the history of uh, PCR, some of the things that we have done. Some of you have heard me say it about 99 times, and some of you haven't. We have a lot of people that has cancer. We have infants, and the majority of them is girls, that was born with some type of brain damage. We have a lot of people that suffer with respiratory problems, and if you notice, I do too, in order to breathe. My work is known nationally. I go all out of town making presentations, talking about the things that I have done here in the city of Chicago. And with this, we hope to prove that our health problem is related to pollution. Thank you. Welcome to Help This Garden Grow. My name is Daniel. And I'm Damon. The story we're about to tell you, the story of Hazel Johnson, changed our lives. And we needed to change yours, too. I don't know if you've noticed this, but things ain't been going great. What do you mean, Dame? Well, you know, there's... A snowstorm and brutal cold hit an unprepared energy system and left nearly 5 million customers in the dark. And... A train derailed, causing a massive explosion and fire. Don't forget about... For 18 months, lead and harmful bacteria leached into the tap water of nearly 100,000 Flint, Michigan residents from 2014 to 2015. There's also... Black Americans are at least twice as likely to die of COVID-19 than whites, almost four times more likely when you control for the fact that the black population is younger. And of course... Scientists warn today that climate change is warming the planet to the point where it's causing irreversible damage in some parts of the world. All around us, we see systems collapsing and infrastructure failing. We're living in the collapse of the systems that govern our lives, and we're having to deal with the consequences every day. And the truth of this reality can be so big and heavy. For many of us, it's easier to cope with this reality by avoiding what's happening around us. But there are always people who don't avoid these truths, either because they choose not to or because the harm of these truths is impacting their daily life so directly that they can't ignore it even if they wanted to. Some of these folks decide to do something about it. They fight to challenge these destructive systems 
while imagining and enacting new possibilities. And these are our people. It's been our honor to be interconnected with a multi-generational coalition of people, organizations, and spaces that have committed themselves to liberation and have come together as a movement. This movement has run campaigns, created media projects, built community hubs, put their bodies on the line, fed people, sheltered people, and challenged power. It's continued a revolutionary lineage of freedom-making and radical imagination that has helped transform Chicago and the rest of the world. And it is from striving to learn about and align with these liberatory lineages that we heard about this powerful woman who was known as the mother of environmental justice. In listening and learning from environmental justice changemakers in our city, one figure kept coming up time and time again. That name was Hazel Johnson. And it was a name that, kind of surprisingly to us, we didn't really know that much about. We'd maybe heard of her in passing, or someone we knew had talked about working with her, but we didn't really know much about this woman who these brilliant visionaries were naming as so important to them. So we did what we always do. The first step of our very thorough research process that we always do when we want to learn more about a person. We googled to see if there was a documentary. We couldn't find one. What we found instead was a spattering of news clips. Hazel Johnson. Hazel Johnson. Hazel Johnson. Hazel Johnson got her start in environmental activism. She's considered to be the mother of the environmental justice movement. Hazel Johnson and her husband moved to the Altgeld Gardens public housing complex in 1962. And she jumped into action after seeing firsthand the high rates of respiratory problems and cancer in the community. Johnson started People for Community Recovery. She fought for clean water, mobilized residents, and her activism led to a presidential award and changes at the federal level. Based on what we've been hearing and what we wanted to learn, these clips did not do Hazel justice. To really understand Hazel, you have to hear her speak. This is WTTW Channel 11 Chicago. Hazel Johnson, uh, you live in Alkel Gardens in the middle of all of the expressways and chemical plants and sludge drying beds. Could you tell us, for those of us who don't come into your neighborhood, what is it like, what does it smell like, and what is it like to live there on a day-to-day basis? It's like living in hell because of the odor that makes you sick all the time. And it's sickening to know that people in our area is an isolated area, is a forgotten area that no one cares about. We have infants that's born with deformities. We have a lot of respiratory problems. We have cancer. Uh, we have people that have to live on uh, oxygen tanks in the home. Do you believe that that is related to the pollution? Sure I do. May I ask you what you think needs to be done in order to deal with this problem then? Do you want to shut down all the industry around here? Do you want to move people out? What do you want to do? Close all the industry down and re- relocate the people. I've been asking that for years. You uh, want to close all the industry? Sure I do. Uh, uh, human health come first. What do people... You know, that's the problem with the industries, the politicians, and everybody else to care about the bucks. But what is happening to people's health? And I don't think that my community should share the burden for the whole city of Chicago, and we've been doing it ever since 1863. So you now say you, you either move the people... Yeah. Is there a middle ground? Can you come to some kind of agreement with these companies? No. 
we're not uh, economizing with these people in the company. We want them closed down because we feel that they're affecting our health while they're making millions of dollars each year. Now, that's what I'm talking about. She ain't playing with these people just to witness her poise, her commitment. She's not moving an inch. She really is a badass in how she holds it down. Yeah, I mean, she's facing a sea of incredibly 80s white hair and like weird talk show vibes. And she's up there like unshaken. This radical truth-telling and fearless commitment is what's needed to deal with all the problems of today and the problems that we know are to come. So we invite you to join us on this journey to learn everything we can about Hazel Johnson, her organization, People for Community Recovery, and the gift she and the environmental justice movement has given us. A legacy and a pathway to survive, to repair, and to build a healthier, sustainable world. To unwrap this gift... We need to know the right questions to ask. We believe that the best way to tell a story isn't to demand answers, but to find the people who love the person you're trying to learn about and to develop the questions and then search for the answers together. In this case, it's clear who we needed to be doing that work with. The current director of the organization Hazel started, People for Community Recovery, is her daughter, Cheryl Johnson. Oh, so so you're going to ask me questions? Okay, cool. Cheryl has gracefully carried the baton of her mother's legacy. And not only has Cheryl been generous in telling this story, but she's also agreed to be our partner in building this project. And Cheryl didn't want to do this alone. Together, we built our creative cabinet, an advisory council of sorts, made up of contemporary environmental justice leaders in Chicago, who Cheryl sees as part of her mother's legacy. Together, We've built the questions and themes that we need to guide us on this path of trying to understand Hazel and her legacy. Um, My name is Adela Bass, and um, I am a lead liaison with uh, People for Community Recovery. I still live in the same area. I'm just a little bit further down the street (laughs) from Argyll Gardens, where uh, PCR is located. My name is Kyra Woods. I... Grew up here in Chicago in the Beverly neighborhood on the Southwest side. I currently work as a policy advisor with the city, but if asked what I do, I would say that I pride myself as being a problem solver and a great question asker. (laughs) My name is Juliana Pino. Much of my work is organized through the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, where I direct our public policy work. But I also am involved in a lot of different movements in Chicago. I'm honored and blessed to collaborate with many different people throughout Chicago and to learn every day about the different ways that violence shows up in folks' lives and what we could be doing to end that violence and and get real justice. My name is Olga Bautista. I'm from the southeast side of Chicago. I was born and raised here, and I'm a mom, a wife, and my husband and I are raising our two daughters in the same neighborhood that we grew up in. Things have changed and evolved for the better because of the activism and the movements that um, I'm really proud to have led in this neighborhood. My name is Tanisha Harris. I am 24 years old. I grew up in South Shore. My official title is Chicagoland Conservation Manager at the Illinois Environmental Council, and I work in policy legislation and organizing for the environment. 
Tanisha has since moved on and is now the Associate Director of Communications and Partnership at Action for the Climate Emergency. Now that we have our cabinet, we're finally ready to sit down with Cheryl. I think we can start with the same question that we start all of our interviews with, um, and it's a two-part question. Uh, And the question is, in this time, and defined time however you will, this hour, this moment, this season, this lifetime, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? How the world treating me, and how I'm treating the world. Well, I start with how I'm treating the world. You know, I'm a type of person that people gravitate to. I'm a caring person. I have sympathy. I can understand. I connect with people. Even dogs in my neighborhood love me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know my neighbor dog's name. Um, I enjoy myself, you know. There'll be some ups and downs, and sometimes I get lonely because I come from a large family. I come from a family of nine. There's only two of us left, me and my baby sister. We was a very close-knitted family. So life is good and challenging, you know. I just hate the fact that, you know, we got to deal with a lot of the implicit bias, prejudice, institutional racism and the whole misconception that I'm trying to demystify is about the life of people living in public housing. Now, how I see the world, I only could relate it to the work that I do. Today, it's rewarding. It's almost like I tell people I can breathe now. At one point, I was always angry in this movement because, you know, people took us For granted, they didn't believe that environmental justice was a real thing and environmental racism happened. And the fact that our community was always targeted to be harmed. You know, I've been involved with the organization for 40 years, but I've been working here for 36 years. And to see the trials of the tribulation that my mother went through 40 years ago and the abuse that she had to endure with it, but it didn't stop her. I just wish she was here to see that the work that she has done over the years is getting the the recognition that it should. All right. Before we go forward, we have to break down two really important pieces to this story. We have to be able to define public housing and we have to define environmental justice. First, let's start with public housing. This story of Hazel's legacy takes place in Allgale Gardens an ambitious post-war public housing development, one of many built in Chicago and around the United States in the mid-20th century. Following the Great Depression, we see the federal government collaborating with cities to experiment in new efforts of public housing that in many ways started as intentional forms of slum clearance. And although many races and ethnicities occupied these spaces, within a few decades of these developments being built, the phrase public housing became stigmatized and synonymous with conceptions of black poverty and plight mainly due to the practice of redlining and racist housing policy that severely limited the options for Black people in communities to live and to create home with a sense of dignity. By the time me and Daniel came around in the world, the air quote projects had been largely abandoned, under-resourced, and divested from, and were falling into disrepair. And in Chicago, the same government that built them a few decades earlier and then abandoned them 
decided to tear them down en masse, with disregard for the people that lived there. From that vantage point, it's hard to remember that Allgill Gardens, like so many other housing developments, for many was originally seen as a step up. One of the main things that we have to be clear about is that housing was always, in the city of Chicago, a challenge for Black people. We always lived in one of the most deplorable areas in the city of Chicago. Allgill Gardens was the garden spot. It was a beautiful, even though from historically, it is a highly contaminated area. But it became our home. And it's, and it's hard to just uplift your home and relocate somewhere else. What we've come to know is that this space was surrounded by toxicity in a spot now known as the Toxic Donut. And on a personal level, the gardens has been an important place for my family. My grandmother lived there for a few years during her childhood and often tell me memories about this mythical bus line that would take her from 130th down Michigan Avenue. My mother would occasionally be babysat in the gardens by extended family members. My dad even went to Carver High School for a semester, which is located in the gardens. So for me, the gardens mostly existed in my imagination and in these stories of the past. And when I would think about this space or hear stories, it would almost feel like a flashback scene in a movie. I knew that my family and community had connection to this space, but I did not fully understand the history of this land and the significance of the community. And starting to ask people about the gardens, it was clear to me I wasn't the only one who wasn't fully aware of its history. Even people who grew up in the gardens didn't fully know the history of this land or even know Hazel as a historical figure. I left Algill Gardens for college in 1981. That's Dr. Joy West, a longtime physician and advocate for public health who fights racial disparities in the health system, who's also a close and dear friend of my family. As I look back, there were signs of the impact on our health of being in this toxic donut. But at the time, we didn't know. It was not uncommon for everybody to have eczema. It wasn't uncommon that everybody had asthma. I remember one of my sisters always had problems with her skin. Several of my sisters did, but we never connected those dots. You don't know what you don't know when you're growing up. So as children, and even as young adults, we didn't know the impact of living with the uh, steel mills so close, with the landfills so close, with the uh, waste management so close. We just knew that that was a part of our environment. I had no idea that I was living on a wasteland. And even now, as I learn more about that environment, it's mind-boggling that we didn't know. It's mind-boggling that our community uh, was a dumping area. I would have never thought that government authorities, the EPA, the Chicago Housing Authorities, would allow harm in that way. I would have never thought that private companies, the steel mill, Ford, uh, Sherwin-Williams, some of the companies that surround Gale Gardens, would not have been held accountable for the harm that they were causing to the environment. Realizing that I was a part of that, you know, it, it just hits home in a different kind of way. It is incredible what we have endured and what we continue to endure. And 
it is so impressive to me that someone as uniquely a, a, a mother really amplified the issue and, and really shined a light on uh, what was happening at Allgill Gardens because we we had no clue. I'm a gardener, like so I love being in the soil. That's Dr. Sylvia Hood Washington. In addition to being a phenomenal gardener, Sylvia is a highly accomplished and successful environmental epidemiologist, environmental engineer, and environmental historian and clinician. With over 30 years of research experience working on the impact of industrial pollution on human health. When you grow something, you don't just stick it outside in the ground. No, no, no. You actually select where you're going to put it outside. You protect it. They put chemicals into the environment. And it came out in the bodies of the residents of Alt-Gill Garden. I mean, it's not as if they went to the North Shore and the Gold Coast and created Alt-Gill Gardens. They put them in the toxic donut. Here's Creative Cabinet member Juliana Pino from El Vejo. Initially, the name, right, was kind of like a, a misnomer. There was so much branding involved in public housing as an institutional project of, of the federal government. But in my mind, it actually is a garden. <laughs> It's actually become something where people were planted and have blossomed into a a beautiful space. Out of that sort of construction of a community has evolved a community in practice where people are deeply invested in each other's lives, know each other for years, um, have stayed generationally, and despite the origins, have built something really, really beautiful. You know, I can afford to go back property to buy me a home and do this work. But I love my neighborhood. I love all girl gardens. I've been out here 59 years. There's nowhere in the city of Chicago that you can really go and find all the open space as we have out here. I, I love the assets of my community. And I just wish people see us as people not based on our class or our race, you know, or just stigmatize that we live in public housing. You know, the president of the United States lives in public housing. So, (laughs) 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 you know. (laughs) Cheryl shares more about how she sees people in public housing being perceived at a talk from a few years ago. The perception that people have on the outside about people in public housing needs to change. We work every day. We never just sitting on the porch eating wallet milling. But the perception that people have that we depended on, no, we may need that assistance, but that's my neighborhood. I would, my income support me to be able to pay for it. So people want to work. People just want a better life, but it's the stereotypes and the racism that exists to say that people from low-income communities don't want anything. Everybody wants something. Nobody was born to think they, they're going to be poor. They should have never built a residential area in an industrialized zone. We always have to prove to our government that something existed in our community that they already knew. It seemed like they had the tendency to cover up. Government is the one that put us in the position that we are in today. Government is the one that allowed us to live on contaminated land. Government is the one that built on this contaminated land. We're not asking for government handout, but if there's things that we're entitled to, that we can apply for, goddammit, I'm asking for it. But we ain't begging for nobody to help. Housing is a human right, and everybody should have equal access to it. 
environmental justice dress housing because if we live in an unhealthy community, we'll make you think our houses ain't going to be unhealthy. You know, it's the interconnection of environmental justice with all the other problems we have in our community. Which brings us to our second definition. Before we can say what environmental justice is, I think it's important we say what it isn't. Because it's a very commonly misused and misunderstood term. And it's a term that I think, coming into this project, I didn't fully understand. Okay, so there's kind of two umbrellas. One is like a huge big golf umbrella, and the one's like a little parasol. The big umbrella is environmentalism. When people think of environmental activism, this is usually what they have in mind. It's very focused on conservation, saving animals, and keeping green spaces green. And currently, we see a lot of direct action around fossil fuels or pipelines or corporate disregard for our environment in an attempt to slow the effects of climate change. This is super important work and something that we should all be paying attention to and contributing to. But it isn't inherently the same thing as environmental justice. Dr. Joy West speaks a little bit more to this distinction. You know, when I think about environmental injustice, you know, preserving the environment, I think about recycling, you know, I think about those sorts of things. I don't think about how marginalized and underserved Black communities can be the target of harm. I, I just, I had not put the two together like that. So it's, it's an eye-opening experience for me. This misconception isn't an accident. As Professor David Pello explains, it's largely the result and is reflected in where the money goes. The foundation, the philanthropic community, gives a pittance of its money to the environmental justice uh, movement compared to what it gives to the white middle-class mainstream environmental movement. And, and I think in, by some metrics, it's actually gotten worse or, or certainly not better, which is just sh should be shocking, but maybe isn't. So if we know what it isn't, how do we define what environmental justice is? Cheryl offers us a basic textbook definition. So what is environmental justice? It's the principle that all people in community are entitled to the same degree of protection from environmental health hazards and equal access to the decision-making process to have a healthy community where we live, work, and play. So what does that really look like? Juliana expands this definition by illuminating environmental racism and how it affects people's day-to-day -day lives. For everyday folks who don't think about this all the time, what does the system look like in your life? Like, when was the last time you could get fresh groceries less than a mile from your house for a price you could afford? When was the last time you could pay your heating bill without stressing that you had to pick between that and like formula for your kid? When was the last time you could breathe without having an asthma attack outside your house in your backyard when you're trying to get your like 30 minutes of leisure between your two jobs? When was the last time you drank water from the tap instead of that bottled water that your abuela has to go 10 blocks to get and carry by herself? When was the last time you cooked with that water out of the tap? Oh, you did cook with that water out of the tap, but, but you noticed that there are some problems coming from that. What does that mean for you? It becomes immediately apparent because people experience it every day, all day. People who are on the receiving end of structural violence experience it all the time and can recognize it in a second. We have this like toxic metamorphosis of the same problem of disposable black and brown bodies for the material accumulation and comfort of people at the top who are largely white people, largely cis men, 
and people who benefit from those identities. And that's still what we're contending with hundreds and hundreds of years later, is this basic idea just warping itself over and over again at the deep and violent expense of Black and brown communities of Indigenous people in the United States, in Chicago. What has to end is the idea that people can do that, right, to other people, the idea that some people are more deserving, and then the lies and the institutions that hold that idea up in practice, even as they say that equality is real and that equity now is also real, that doesn't exist in people's lives. And so until it does, all of that is going to be a lie. Environmental justice is not a single source issue. It's a multitude of issues. You know, it comes from living in safety homes or unhealthy homes. It comes from, well, you got quality education or you get messed up education. If you get health issues in your community, but a lack of clinics to support those health issues. If you have air quality issues, water quality issues, land issues, I call it like umbrella. Environmental justice is the umbrella. The spokes within that umbrella is the housing, education, health, jobs, good jobs, healthy jobs, you know, emergency preparedness, emergency evacuation, all those things. Whatever spoke is broken, that umbrella is no good. So just think about all those spokes within this umbrella is broken, which make us have an unhealthy environment. The spokes that Cheryl named aren't typically what people think of when they think of environmentalism. But the environmental justice movement says that they should be, that the harmful effects of environmental devastation are disproportionately placed on black and brown communities. Hazel and PCR were not alone in their resistance against environmental racism. And throughout the U.S., there were efforts to demand accountability and repair for how policy and industry treated Black communities like wastelands. From fights in Houston in 1979 against the construction of landfills next to Black communities, to nonviolent sit-in protests in Warren County, North Carolina in 1982 opposing toxic dumping, to the founding of WE Act in West Harlem to address the poor management of a sewage treatment plant. And this resistance didn't come out of nowhere. It's important to note that the environmental justice movement sees itself as a continuation of civil rights and Black freedom struggles. In fact, Martin Luther King's last organizing effort in Memphis, Tennessee, with striking sanitation workers for better pay and working conditions, can and should be understood as an environmental justice campaign. As the leaders of these early environmental justice campaigns started to come together and talk, it became clear that even though they were in different places, the harms they were experiencing were not separate. What was happening in Memphis and Warren County was connected to what was happening in Chicago. And for the response to these connected harms to be effective, the communities doing that work also needed to connect. We'll tell the story of how it happened later, but this movement developed 17 principles of environmental justice that still shape and inform the work happening today. All right, attention spans. (laughs) We we gotta have a little check-in here. So we wrestled with it and we made the choice. Y'all have to hear all of the principles, but there are 17 of them. And I'm sure there were more. I'm sure this was the edited down version. (laughs) We think it's really important that you hear all of them, but going through these 17 principles is going to take about four minutes. I think you can handle it. In order to share them with you, we turn to our own community of change makers and environmental justice visionaries who took the time to each read one of these principles. Here we go. Environmental justice affirms the sacredness of Mother Earth, ecological unity and the interdependence of all species, and the right to be free 
from ecological destruction. Environmental justice demands that public policy be based on mutual respect and justice for all peoples, free from any form of discrimination or bias. Environmental justice mandates the right to ethical, balanced, and responsible uses of land and renewable resources in the interest of a sustainable planet for humans and other living things. Environmental justice calls for the universal protection from nuclear testing, extraction, production, and disposal of toxic slash hazardous wastes and poisons, and nuclear testing that threaten the fundamental right to clean air, land, water, and food. Environmental justice affirms the fundamental right to political, economic, cultural, and environmental self-determination of all peoples. Environmental justice demands the secession of the production of all toxins, hazardous wastes, and radioactive materials, and that all past and current producers be held strictly accountable to the people for detoxification and containment at the point of production. Environmental justice demands the right to participate as equal partners at every level of decision-making, including needs, assessment, planning, implementation, enforcement, and evaluation. Environmental justice affirms the right of all workers to a safe and healthy work environment without being forced to choose between an unsafe livelihood and unemployment. It also affirms the right of those who work at home to be free from environmental hazards. Environmental justice protects the rights of victims of environmental injustice to receive full compensation and reparations for damages as well as quality health care. Environmental justice considers governmental acts of environmental injustice a violation of international law. The Universal Declaration on Human Rights and the United Nations Convention on Genocide. Environmental justice must recognize a special legal and natural relationship of Native peoples to the U.S. government through treaties, agreements, compacts, and covenants affirming sovereignty and self-determination. Environmental justice affirms the need for urban and rural ecological policies to clean up and rebuild our cities and rural areas in balance with nature honoring the cultural integrity of all our communities and providing fair access for all to the full range of resources. Environmental justice calls for the strict enforcement of principles of informed consent and a halt to the testing of experimental, reproductive, and medical procedures and vaccinations on people of color. Environmental justice opposes the destructive operations of multinational corporations. Environmental justice opposes military occupation, repression, and exploitation of lands, peoples, and cultures, and other life forms. Environmental justice calls for the education of present and future generations, which emphasizes social and environmental issues based on our experience and an appreciation of our diverse cultural perspectives. Environmental justice requires that we, as individuals, make personal and consumer choices to consume as little of Mother Earth's resources and to produce as little waste as possible, and make the conscious decision to challenge and reprioritize our lifestyles to ensure the health of the natural world for present and future generations. All right, 
You made it. Whew. That was worth it. That's a quality set of principles fire, right there. Fire. Top-notch principles. Try to keep those in mind, because as we move through the rest of the story, you'll hear the way Hazel's work both shapes and is informed by those 17 commitments. And in addition to using these principles as a guide to understand the story, this is one of the first lessons we want you to take along this journey. We encourage you to incorporate them into your life, into your work, and into your community. The story we're about to tell focuses on Chicago, not a particular corner of Chicago, but there is nowhere that is outside of the need for environmental justice. We need you to recognize this is your fight too. Hazel's legacy isn't just confined to the gardens. It is a garden itself. A garden that we all have a responsibility to help grow. She sowed a lot of seeds. So your job is to go out there and to see what she has planted and to reap, to reap that harvest and to grow it stronger and make it flourish. That is what we should be doing. She planted the seeds. She set it up for you. Over the course of this show, you're going to receive so many of those seeds, so many of the tactics, strategies, and approaches to building relationship that Hazel sowed for us. And by the time you reach the end, we hope you'll know, one, how to help the legacy of Hazel's work in the gardens continue, but also be ready and able to see the garden you live in and the ways in which environmental racism is poisoning your garden and endangering your people. And then, we hope you'll take action. That, above all else, is what Hazel asked of herself and of the people around her. When it's time to act, and I look over my shoulder, it's only a hand few. So we don't have the right to criticize when we don't even try to fight the problem. When Hazel stood in front of a microphone and made that call to action, she was in some ways right. There really were just a few. But in the decades that have followed as a result of her work, an ecosystem of people committed to the fight for environmental justice has bloomed around Chicago, across the country, and around the world. Some of the people who have sprouted up in this abundant ecosystem will be our companions on this journey. And they share with us not only how they look to Hazel to inform their strategies and tactics, but also to know how to be, how to be fearless, how to relate to others how to ask questions, how to care, and how to love. What I learned from Hazel and from Cheryl is that it is a very difficult thing to empower folks or for people to find that agency, you know, to create that space so people feel like they could be a leader. It really takes a lot of care. People think that a leader has to look a certain way and talk a certain way. Maybe I'm not the most polished. Maybe Hazel wasn't the most polished. Maybe we're not beloved (laughs) in our community because people hold on to these ideas that women should suffer in silence. You have to have a, a tough skin to be a woman in this situation because they're not used to taking orders or having a leader that is a woman of color. I can't tell you how many times people have shown up to meetings and told me, what you should be doing, Olga, is I'm sure Hazel was getting it all the time. I'm sure, I'm sure of it. It's just that I sit here doing this show with you. 
that that was happening to her because it happens to me almost daily. And if we hadn't had Hazel, you know, pave the way for everyday people to say that this is wrong and I deserve better and it's not my fault. It's probably like the the hardest (laughs) job I've ever had to do in my life, but it's also one of the most important jobs. As a person who struggles with pessimism, I try and recenter my work and love, you know, as, as a way to resist that win on white supremacy's agenda of invading my mind and making me feel like there aren't possibilities by remembering that, that with love and care and community at your back, anything is really possible. That's definitely something that I take from her and from, and from Cheryl in the, in the approach to this work every day. That's something I think about every day. You know, she just had this aura. She has this commanding presence and commanded respect. Hazel didn't take no lip, no guff off of anybody. Uh, I don't care who you were, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, uh, the head of the EPA. She told it like it is and like it was. And, and uh, she was just a great leader and someone who was really wonderful to, to observe and watch and learn from. This is resistance in real life. And this is happening right here. And the legacy of this work is still here. Now that we've got you, us, Cheryl, the cabinet, and this ecosystem, we're equipped to go deeper. In episode two, we uncover the history of the land Algel Garden sits on, how Hazel got there, and how she started her work. On episode three, we dive into her early fights scrapping with state power. In episode four, we see Hazel become a mother of the newly coalesced environmental justice movement and take EJ to the highest halls of power. On episode 5, Hazel passes the baton, and we see PCR overcome attack, disrespect, and blackballing. And in episode 6, we follow where her legacy lives in Chicago's EJ struggles today, and how we're left with the mission to actualize the legacy Hazel envisioned. Alright, we're ready to go on this journey, and we're going to leave you with a final piece of Johnsonian wisdom from Hazel and Cheryl. Living in your own shoebox is better than living in anybody else's mansion. But you have to take care of your own shoebox so you could continue to live in. She said, but I know I may not do it in my lifetime, but at least she's setting the ground for it to continue. Oh, how she should say this? She used to say, how can I fight something that I don't know what's going on? But if I'm here, I can fight the problem. I know what's going on. And that's the reason why I stay here, because I like to fight for my rights. All right, now it's time for us to help this garden grow. Help This Garden Grow is presented by Respair Production and Media with Elevate and People for Community Recovery. The show is hosted and created by us, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger. Our co-executive producers are Sylvia Ewing, Ann Evans, and Cheryl Johnson. Our associate producer is Natalie Frazier. Our editor is Rocio Santos. And our consulting producers are Maurice and Judith from Juneteenth Productions. Special thanks to our creative cabinet, Adela Bass, Olga Batista, Tanisha Harris, Juliana Pino, and Kyra Woods. 
Our artwork is designed by Ariana Eggleston with additional multimedia support from Davon Clark. Help This Garden Grow was recorded in the Malika Ling studio at the Breathing Room Space, a movement-building center stewarded by the Let Us Breathe Collective. You can find out more about the work of Respair Production and Media at respairmedia.com, get in tune with Elevate and elevatenp.org, and support the work of PCR at peopleforcommunityrecovery.org. Much love to the people. Peace.